have your Bibles, uh, please keep them open uh, there to Genesis chapter 2. As we cover this topic, I have to admit it's not one they really train you to preach for in seminary. And yet, sex is something we really can't escape in today's world at all. Uh, as the old saying goes, sex sells and everyone is buying it. Whether it's used to sell things from soap to cars, it is the, literally the carrot that we dangle out there to sell and promote just about every product. And so, in our day today, we do both extremes when we talk about this topic. We make too much of sex, and we also tend to make too little of it. As society has exiled or kicked out God, the transcendent God uh, from life, the self inevitably moved in. It became the center of all meaning and all purpose in life. And as we gaze deeper into our own eyes, uh, sex has taken center stage. The goal of life, by many people, is the idea of self-expression. That's the highest good, is that you can be the most genuine and the best you out there. And so self-expression becomes the highest good. And in the search for self-expression, sexual intercourse and identity in our day have become sacred cows. There are things you're not allowed to question. There are things you're not allowed to challenge. And it's even held out there that you cannot live a good or complete human life without experiencing uh, sexual intercourse. My roommate in college used to always joke, Jesus better not come back before I get married. And uh, I was sympathetic. <laughs> and no, um, if that's true, uh, then Jesus did not live a fulfilled human life. But there he was, nonetheless. So while sex is glorified in our culture, confusion simultaneously runs rampant. We have all the different hashtags and movements we could talk about, uh, the Prevalence of sexual abuse, the Me Too movement, sex trafficking, and then on the other side, we sexualize absolutely everything uh, from our children uh, to movies, TV, pornography, uh, the idea of having sex without anything else, friends with benefits, uh, no strings attached. The topic is ubiquitous, as I said at the outset. We can't really escape uh, talking about it. And that's really how society thinks too much about this topic. It's held out to many a young person that this is where you will find meaning and purpose in life. If you find your genuine self in this area, everything will just be good for you. But we also think too little of sex. We tend to make it common, we make it crass, the butt end of every joke, and we divorce it from the beauty of a covenantal relationship, the beauty of a marriage, a lifelong union of a husband and wife. And so sex can become a cheap exchange that can be given to anyone without any commitments. There's actually a growing movement, I read about this in young people, who don't want to do that anymore because they figured out it's a lie. There's always strings attached. You can't divorce this act from emotion and commitment and relationship. And so we find in this area of life a lot of hurt to go along with that confusion. A lot of pain, a lot of evil, and ugliness. We have children murdered in the womb in the quest of sexual autonomy, sexual freedom. We have children growing up in one-parent homes. We have wrecked marriages and sexual immorality runs unchecked. That's just the tip of the iceberg 
of how this area can go wrong. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we find the foundations for understanding this rightly. And we should ask ourselves the question, why do we make such a big deal out of this? And why is there so much pain and hurt? And that's because God gives this as a gift for our good. And the greater the gift, the more perverse its distortion. And the greater damage you find when you don't live according to God's rules. And that is really the air we breathe in the West today. And so the church, as much as I feel awkward standing behind this pulpit having to preach this sermon, the church, we must, be, we must overcome our prudishness to talk about this. We have to look at what God says. And we have to talk about it without becoming crass or graphic and to teach what God has to say. This is the battlefield of our day. And if we remain silent, we forfeit. Parents, you must actively teach your children in this area, age appropriately, obviously. But if you don't teach them, the world will. And so you must teach them what the scripture has to say from this. So we're going to dive into that this morning. And the first truth we see from Genesis, well, really one and two, is that there are only two sexes. There are only two. That's the way God made it. You read in, in Genesis 1, 20, 26-28, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female. He created them. Despite the never-ending and growing alphabet soup of our day, there are only two sexes. That's it. You can try to argue against that, but it's not reality. And we should be clear, there are birth defects. And these birth defects do impact about one in a thousand births. That should not surprise us as we live in a fallen world. But even within those one in a thousand births where there are defects, most of those are still clearly either male or female. There's really only a small percentage that we could define as being intersex. And in these rare cases, Christians like us should be really filled with grace, patience, and we should have nothing but sympathy for that person and their parents in any of the difficult decisions that they have to make. But those birth defects and abnormalities demonstrate that something has gone amiss, that something's gone wrong. They are not the standard, they are the exception. So for example, it is right for me to say that humans have two eyes, they have two arms. Yes, some people are not born with two eyes or two arms. Some people lose one of those throughout the course of their life. That's how a fallen world works. And yet, it's still right to say that humans have two eyes and two arms. I had a friend in a similar way. It's, uh, it's right to say that humans have 10 fingers. I have a friend, a close friend, who was born with 12. And as an infant, they cut off two of the, two of the fingers, so he only had the 10. But it's still right to say humans are born with 10 fingers. A defect does not negate the reality. In the same way, we cannot allow birth defects in the sexual area of life to negate the truth that God created them, male and female. In his own image, he created them. And that whatever you are born with is largely immutable. That's who you are, especially genetically and DNA-wise. It cannot be changed. No matter what lies sold to individuals, it will never change. 
transgender advocates like to argue from the exception that biological sex doesn't matter because there are one in a thousand birth defects. And if those surgeries and those sex changes actually worked, which they don't, study after study shows that, we wouldn't have this problem. But um, they are not arguing, they do not use that exception as the only way in which there could be sex change surgeries. It's a red herring. They say, say look, so one in a thousand are born this way. Okay, if you want to limit those surgeries to just those one, thousand, one in one thousand, I don't think most of us would have a problem with that. But they, what they're really arguing is that any person at any time, no matter having defect or not, can switch from one sex to the other. And that is absurd on its face. The Bible teaches that man made, or God made man in his own image, male and female, he made them. And really, I shouldn't have to explain that. It's pretty self-evident. And yet we live in a society where we are told the exact opposite is true. The second thing we take from this passage is that the two sexes are complementary. By that, I do not mean that they say nice things about one another, but rather that there is something lacking, that the two come together and bring a completed whole. To begin, as stated last week, a men and women are both created equal. It says they are both made in his image. That equality is not found in their ability, it's not found in their role, and it's not even found in their occupation. But it's found in that they both bear the image of God. The equality is rooted in our relationship with our Creator. Men do not represent God more than women, and women do not represent God's image more than men. They both bear that image. And yet, it is the coming together of male and female that presents the most full and complete picture of the image of God. And so yes, we can say that men and women are indeed different. As crazy as that may sound. The very first thing that God says was not good in his creation is that Adam was all by himself. That Adam was alone. That he brought all the animals of creation before him and there was not found for him a suitable helper. There was not found anyone to complement or complete the human race. And in making the suitable helper for man, it could not have been any one of those animals, so God uses a part of the man. This oneness we talk about between men and women starts with the woman comes out of the man. She comes out of his side. And she's made to be a suitable complement or helper to him to fill in what is lacking. And so, with all of the follow the science mantras of our day, we like to ignore, as a society, that there are literally heaps and heaps and heaps of study upon study, biological evidence that men and women are different. Their brains even function differently. Study upon study shows this. I have a one-year-old daughter at home after having three sons, and even at one year old, she is so much different than my three sons were at that age. We cannot ignore that God has, in general, created women to be more intuitive and more relational than men. And men are created, in general, to be more task-oriented and physically stronger 
than women. And this is really the pitfall of modern feminism. While so much of the first wave of feminism grew out of the church and produced some good things, unlike women's rights, it's the second, third, and now fourth wave of feminism that have been an utter disaster. Because they stressed from the beginning, or the second wave, that there really is fundamentally no difference between men and women. Women can do everything uh, that men can do, just as well, and if not, better. They're basically saying there is no difference between the two. And now we have, to our own shame, people from both parties arguing in our elected institutions to draft our daughters for war, which is absurd. When feminism viewed the most obvious feminine distinction, that is having children, as they viewed that as an evil, and they viewed it as something holding them back, they showed an utter contempt for true femininity. Are women reduced to only having children? No. But it is the most unique thing that distinguishes them from men. And if you view that as evil, then it is you who hate women, and not other people. And so it should be no surprise that if we say there is no difference between men and women, that we get what we get today, gender fluidity. We can just move back and forth. Why? Because there's really no difference between the two. And so now we can have 87 and counting invented genders. Now we should be clear here, there are stereotypes and there are cultural norms about men, men and women that are not universally true. It really doesn't matter in your house who cooks and who cleans. It's really not more masculine to watch WWE wrestling. It's just a fake kind of masculinity. What then is the main difference between a man and a woman? In the most basic sense, Scripture teaches us that God made men to lead and to have responsibility, to take responsibility. That's at the heart of what it means to be a man. You take ownership of whatever it is you're working at. Men are created to protect, to defend, and to provide for their family. To be a man is to take responsibility and to take the lead. And this is where men, in particular, can feel a real temptation to sin in two different extremes. The first is men can see, hey, I'm supposed to be a leader, so you know what I'm going to be? I'm going to be a tyrant. You do everything I say because God says I'm the leader. Seek to rule with an iron fist. And husbands and fathers who do that are not fulfilling what God has intended. I've said it before, I'll say it again. God hates tyrants. He hates tyrants if they're in the government. He hates them if they're in the home. Because a tyrant is trying to be God himself. And you are not God. The second extreme, the second extreme, which is far more prevalent today, is that men just abdicate their leadership. They become lazy. They become detached. They become unwilling to do what God has called them to do. And the fact that our culture turns out such men at an alarming rate shows you how sick we are. Yellow-bellied chumps who care little about anything besides fornicating and playing video games. Such men run away from their God-given call to be a man, and they only hurt women. As much as feminists may say they want such a man, no, they don't. They will come to despise and hate such men because they are despisable. What does it mean to be a woman? 
Women are called to follow their men, fathers or husbands. They are not to submit to all men, but the men the Lord has placed in their lives, fathers and husbands. Being a helper where he is lacking, and especially the woman was given a special sphere of focus, and that is the home. Women alone can bring forth life. Men can help to start life, but men do not bring forth life like women do. And as inconvenient and pain-ridden as childbearing is, it is unique and glorious in a way that men will never experience. And when I say women are given a unique focus on their home and their children, that does not mean that they are shackled to the home. It does not mean that they can never leave the home. It does not mean that they cannot work outside of the home. But it means that everything they do has the home and the family at the heart of their motivation. If you look at Proverbs 31, we're given this beautiful picture of what a perfect godly woman was. And you can read that as a woman and be like, I'll never be that. Well, it's a picture of her entire life, not just one day. You can't do all of that in one day. But you find someone rising early, taking care of her children. You find her in the marketplace selling the goods that she has made outside of the home. The Bible doesn't limit her to just the home, but she cares deeply and is always revolving around that home. In the most obvious way, the way men and women are different and how they complement each other is sexually. And then women have different organs. And when they come together, there is the potential for new life. There's a potential to fulfill that command of Genesis 1, to be fruitful and to multiply. And it is self-evident that the sexual organs of men and women are designed to fit together. Amen. You don't have to go to the Bible to figure that out. But the Bible reinforces it anyways. That is their design, and to deny it is to deny reality and to fall into stupidity. Third, as we look in this passage, the third thing we see in Genesis 2 is the blessing of the two becoming one. The two becoming one flesh. The pinnacle of this chapter, what Genesis 2 moves to and what it ends at, the last verses, is the first marriage. It's the coming together of the husband and the wife. God has Adam name all the animals. He finds no one suitable to help Adam. So God has a deep sleep fall upon him. He takes out Adam's rib from his side and he makes the woman. And she is there to fill what is lacking, to complete the human race. And when Adam wakes up, the first words he says to her are poetry. If you have a version of the Bible that sets off the poetry, you'll notice that that section is set off. He says, this alone is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You think he found her beautiful? You think he found her desirable? You think he was happy? I do. She was God's good gift to Adam, overcoming the first thing that was wrong in creation. And so as the chapter works itself out, that pinnacle comes with the first marriage, the first coming together of a husband and his wife. Those last two verses, 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. The two were naked, there was no shame, there was no sin, and they became one flesh. 
That's the pinnacle of Genesis 2, before everything goes off the rails in the next chapter. So there are many things we can deduce from these teachings. Um, I limited it to six because we got to get out of here before lunch. <laughs> but here are six things we can, we can take from just, just that. And the first is this, that you and I are made to live in community. We are made to love others and to be loved by others. And the marriage relationship is the pinnacle of that. It is the best display, the most that loving should interchange between two individuals. And this is, ties to the idea of being made in the image of God. God is triune. He is Father, He is Son, and Holy Spirit. And for eternity past, they have existed together in perfect community and in perfect love. So much so that the Apostle John says, God is love. That's part of what he means by it. That even without humanity, God loved within himself. Between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And being made in God's image means that we are meant to love others and to be loved by others. That's why the two great commands are love God and love others. If we were not made in God's image, then love, especially romantic love, is nothing more than a chemical in your head. It's nothing more than physical lust and desire. We are not made to live alone. And in marriage, we reflect the community and love of God himself. Second, maleness and femaleness are good things. Being a man or being a woman is a pre-fall reality. It's there before sin comes. And that means... Whatever God has made you, man or woman, you are to receive that with thanksgiving, with goodness. Being male or female is not something to be raged against. And when you do, you only hurt yourself. I read a, a book last year about the insanity in the West on sexuality. It was actually written um, by a conservative who's a homosexual. It's very odd. Uh, to read the book, but he talked about this really sad story of an individual uh, in Europe where they allowed these transgender surgeries, and I can't remember if it was a he or a she, but the person went through, went through the sex uh, reassignment surgery, and their depression that they had beforehand got only worse. And this country also allowed euthanasia. And so he, this individual applied for euthanasia because it didn't get any better. The state approved it. And he had a party with his friends and then killed himself. Study after study shows that if you go through with these things, you will most likely be more depressed afterwards and you'll be more likely to kill yourself. Because it's a lie. It's not going to make things better. Because you can't actually change. God created all things good. And this includes your sexuality. That includes being a man. That includes being a woman. Of course these realities are fallen. Of course these realities are distorted and abused. But you are not guilty or less than just because you find yourself being a man or a woman. Third, sexual intercourse, the pinnacle of chapter 2, is good, it's righteous, and it's a gift from God to mankind. Put it plainly, God made sex. He wasn't surprised by it. And it was a part of the good creation. Evangelicals and Christians tend to be overly prudish about this topic. And when we are, we forfeit a really important topic 
to those who know nothing really about it at all. And that's exactly where they've hit us. You must teach your children about this. If you paint them or model for them that sex is an icky thing, or just a necessary evil for this life, then you are leaving them vulnerable to the siren calls of our age. Sex is good, it is not sub-Christian, and it is something that God made for you to benefit from and to enjoy. In, in the book of Hebrews, we read that we are to keep our marriage beds holy. The implication there is that married sex is holy and can be and should be. It means it's pleasing and righteous and gives glory to God. It's woven into the fabric of his good universe. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4 that forbidding marriage and forbidding sex is the doctrine of demons. To deny its goodness is to fall into a trap set by Satan himself. Fourth, sexual intercourse is reserved for a covenantal marriage between one man and one woman. And every sexual act outside of that is sinful and abhorrent to God. Whether that's inward lust, pornography, homosexuality, extramarital affairs, uh, heavy touching pre-marriage, these are all sinful abuses and distortions of God's good gift. God's desire is for the coming together of two people to establish a oneness for life. Not a, not a two-ness, not a three-ness, not a four-ness. But that two people come together and are one. Within marriage, sexual intercourse is the pinnacle of romantic love. That's how God has designed it. It is how a husband freely gives of himself to his wife for her benefit and her enjoyment, and where the wife freely gives of herself for the enjoyment and benefit of her husband. And that is the mark of love. The giving of oneself for the other. In and through marriage, the two objectively become one, both physically and relationally. Fifth, sexual intercourse is intimate, private, and impacts us like nothing else. By intimate, I mean it's weighty, it's private, it's only for a husband and his wife. And it means that, and weighty also means that it goes beyond physical urges and physical pleasures. It does impact. There are strings attached. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that unlike any other sin, sexual sin is a sin against your own body when you commit it. It impacts you unlike any other sin. Of course God forgives it. Of course there are ways um, or that Christ's blood covers it. But this lie that sex can just be a physical act is not supported by Scripture. Amen. It impacts us. Sixth, sex has meaning and purpose. Sex being designed for a covenantal marriage is meant to do certain things, to bring about certain realities. The Bible gives us three basic purposes for sexual intercourse. And the first is the most obvious, procreation. The joining together of a man and a woman carries with it the potential of new life. And God loves new life. 
Now, not every act between a husband and his wife has to have the potential for new life. But every lifelong union, as long as there's not some physical impairment, every lifelong union between a husband and his wife should have children as a goal at some point. To intentionally or permanently make your marriage fruitless is sinful. It goes against God's design. The second purpose of sex is relational intimacy. The two become one. A marriage that is never consummated, our law recognizes, is not a marriage. A marriage, as long as it is physically possible, should, husband and wife, should frequently come together because they are one. And through this, they express their love for one another, they comfort one another, they encourage one another, and they enjoy one another. The third purpose of sex is pleasure. You know, our society wants to make that the only purpose. <coughs> But scripture does include it. God created sex. He created the anatomy of men and women. And he made the act pleasurable, enjoyable. It's not an accident. And so husbands should sexually enjoy and take pleasure in their wives. And so should their wives take pleasure in their husbands. In fact, in Proverbs 5, we read this. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. So sometimes we think the Bible's boring. I don't think that's The Bible literally commands you here to sexually enjoy your spouse, and to be filled and intoxicated with them and their physical beauty. Those are the purposes. This is why God has made it. This is why it is a good gift. And when we live that out, we do so in such a way that gives glory to God, that, that is holy and righteous. I think far too often, I think the worst thing, the worst thing about our culture's view of sex is that it's not that beautiful. It becomes ugly, it becomes distorted. And yet the Bible's picture here is just wonderfully beautiful, objectively better. If you're ever at a wedding and they do the, the dance where who's ever been married the longest and then that last couple is there dancing and everyone claps, that's objectively praiseworthy and beautiful. It's becoming more and more rare. We're going to end with, with one, one last item here. There is a greater meaning to the one flesh union. Marriage is an objective good. It's not a ball and chain. It's not an evil thing. It's not a burden on your life. Yes, there are challenges in marriage. Yes, it can be difficult at times. But marriage is a grace and a blessing. There is no greater earthly gift that I have than my wife. I am blessed, encouraged, and strengthened by her absolutely every single day. She might not say the same thing about me, but <laughs> she is God's greatest blessing in my life. And in Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that this marriage, this one flesh union, reflects a deeper mystery, and that is Christ and his church. You read this in Ephesians 5. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his, his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. 
Therefore a man should leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It goes back to Genesis 2, he cites it, it says, From the beginning, God made this for a special reason, to reflect a greater reality. And that is the love between Christ and his church. Just as the husband and wife are one, you read throughout the New Testament again and again, the church and Christ are one. Just as Christ gives himself to pursue and care for the church, so also the husband must give himself to pursuing and caring for his wife. Just as the church is to submit to Christ, so also the wife is to submit to her husband. Just as the coming together of a husband and wife is full of joy and brings great new realities, so also will Christ's work bring the consummation of the new creation with greater joy than anything you've experienced in this life. This passage, we should note, does not say, as we often think, that your marriage should reflect the gospel. It should reflect these realities, but rather it says it inherently does. That's what it does. And so, the question isn't whether or not your marriage or your sexual ethic, if you're single, is declaring uh, the gospel. The question is, is it declaring a true gospel or a false version of it? You can't escape it. It's saying something about Jesus. It's saying something about the church. And so we must strive to have marriages that are marked by love for one another. Grace, forgive one another. And where the husband leads for the good of the family, not for himself. And where the husband, wife, and children prosper under his leadership. And so for Christians, marriage and sexuality is really at the center of our faith because it's designed to reflect the gospel. If the church compromises on this topic, she compromises on the gospel itself. So Christ's love is like the best love of any husband for, the, for his bride, the church. And it is that love displayed at the Christmas time. He came and he sought her. I know there's husbands in this room. You had to seek her. You had to win her over. Emily told me when we first met, she's like, I'm not going to date anyone until junior year of college. We were married by junior year. <laughs> I had to convince her. I had to seek her. She kept giving me not-so-subtle hints. Leave me alone. I'm not leaving you alone. <laughs> Christ's love seeks us. He added to himself a human nature to come for his bride. And the one flesh union points to that love, to Christ our Savior, and the future joys of his kingdom. Your best experiences in marriage are but shadows of the future joys of his kingdom. And that is our hope. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us this picture of your gospel. We thank you that you have given us the benefits, the joys, the ups and downs of marriage and family. We know there is so much pain and hurt and confusion in this area. And yet you have spoken so that we might know. So Lord, I ask that you would impart life in the marriages here that are already marriages and the marriages that will be that are represented here. 
Lord, that you would make those things just a glimpse, a glimpse of your gospel and a glimpse of the future glories of the new creation. And Lord, where we have fallen short, may you convict us, may we repent, and may we experience true forgiveness from you and from one another. And may by your spirit and your grace strengthen us to live out this picture better for your glory and for our sake. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.